Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's My Favorite Case. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case that they worked in. Some are high profile, some you've maybe never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case is a really high profile case. It is about the hunt for a killer, the victim, was burned alive in his car, and the woman convicted of killing him sits on California's death row. The case involves drugs and white supremacists, and the man who worked this homicide is Danny Smith. He was an L.A. County sheriff's deputy at the time. Now he is retired, and he is a prolific writer of crime novels. You have one in the background there. Danny, welcome to the program. Thank you, Anna. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you. Uh, Danny and I actually worked on um, a case for Crime Watch Daily. Um, so that's how we know each other for the last few years. It's a case that was close to your heart. Now, it's interesting to me, Danny, that of all the cases that you could have discussed on this program, and you've even worked on the murder case against music producer Phil Spector, that this was the case that really stood out for you. This is this is a case that was really important to you. Why is that? Well, it's, it's truthfully, it's the most tragic, well, not the most, but it's one of the most tragic cases I've ever worked. And it's, and it's a it's a, it's the type of a case that has broad appeal to true crime fans because it's, it's one of those stories that's, it's unbelievable, truthfully. Yeah, it is. It's quite tragic. Um, let's just go through a quick summary of the case, and then you can tell us all the details of what it was like to work this case. The victim sure. here is 61-year-old William Whiteside, and he was killed on February 28th of 2003 in Lancaster, California. William was a maintenance worker at a local hospital, and he was found dead almost two weeks later. He had been burned alive in the trunk of his car, an incredibly violent and vicious murder charged and ultimately convicted in this crime are the following people. There were several of them. His live in girlfriend at the time, who was 36, Valerie Martin. Valerie Martin was convicted of murder and she was sentenced to death, which, you know, takes a lot to get to that point in a case oh in California. Her son, who was 16 years old at the time, Ronald Kupchik, is that is that a correct pronunciation? Kupch. 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 Thank you. So her son, 16 year old Ronald Kupch, 
was convicted of murder and sentenced to life without parole. His friend, who was only 14 years old at the time, Bradley Zoda, because he was a juvenile, he agreed to testify against the others. And for his cooperation, he entered into a plea deal. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And then the final person in this case, 28 year old Christopher Kennedy, who was an ex-con, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to life without parole. So three of the four were sentenced to prison. And, and even though Valerie was sentenced to death because of the current status of the death chamber in in California, pretty much those who are sitting on death row are in effect they're there for life. That the the shocking, besides the fact that this was so violent, is that you also had very young people involved. You had a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old involved in this murder. So the, the basic facts of the case are William Whiteside, who was divorced and had grown children of his own, had met his girlfriend, Valerie, at the hospital where they both worked. And William had moved in with her a few months prior to the murder. Do you want to pick it up from there, Danny? Yeah, sure. Um, so what, an important element of this is, is William Whiteside uh, was a Native American, actually registered to a tribe and, and the whole works. And uh, the reason that's important is because these the suspects in this case, uh, other than Valerie Martin, the mother of, uh, of 16-year-old Ronald Cups, also the, he goes by Ray Ray, but um, uh, they were skinheads. They were part of uh, Aryan white supremacist uh, skinhead gangs. And they would refer to William Whiteside to his face uh, with the N-word. That's what they that's what they called him because he was someone other than white. And that's an important factor in this case, obviously. But, um, and, and it was, it was Valerie Martin who moved in with, with William actually. Uh, and, and she had sort of a checkered past and William Whiteside being 61, he was, he was working at the hospital. He's a guy that's never been in trouble with anything in his life. He lived a pretty modest and, um, organized life. He, he had a, a nice mobile home and a nice little trailer park in Lancaster. And, uh, and Valerie Martin really didn't have much, you know, she kind of bounced around and, and she was a mess. And she hooked on to William Whiteside and uh, very quickly moved into his, his trailer with him. So, you know, it, it was an okay relationship for a, a short period of time. And then Valerie's son, Ray Ray, Ronald Cups, he gets out of juvenile hall. And when he does, he hooks up with his mom. And of course, she talks William into letting him stay there because he's got nowhere to go. And then pretty soon, all of Ray Ray's friends start hanging around. And pretty soon, they're using meth and other drugs. And, uh, and of course, Valerie gets involved in this too, because she's a user, of, you know, she's been a user in the past. So at some point, uh, William Whiteside really became tired of the whole thing and and he didn't want the boys around um, and and he was putting some pressure on Valerie so that that's when there there became a, a bit of a divide now if I can back up a little bit the way this case came in it was a missing persons case and what uh, what happened with this was Valerie Martin um, 
she made the report saying that, that you know, her boyfriend that she lives with, uh, you know, that, that he's gone missing. And of course, from the very beginning, uh, missing persons, the missing persons detail is a, a unit within the LA Sheriff's Homicide Bureau. And everyone that works at unit, those, those individuals, those investigators are former homicide detectives. They're, they're, you know, it's kind of like people that go to the, the unsolved unit, the cold case unit. It's piece, people that are, are kind of moving on from the floor where they're working crazy hours and, and they, they take a job that's more of a Monday through Friday, nine to five deal. But they're very experienced investigators and they're former homicide detectives. And from the very beginning, uh, the detective, Judy Gibson, who had this case, she didn't like it. And she said, you know, uh, th this thing's not good. So she monitored it for a few days. And then she asked our uh, lieutenant, she said, you know, I'd like to put a team on this. And that, that's how uh, my partner, Bob Keeney, and I, we got involved in the case. We were up for murders. So uh, we were the next, next team to go out and they gave us the case. So our first uh, order of contact was Valerie Martin. She filed the missing persons case. So she's going to be our contact through this. And of course, even though we think that there's some suspicious circumstances, truthfully, she is the person that we have to get the bulk of information from. And, um, and that's kind of how the case started. So before I ramble too long, did you have any questions about that? Yeah. So it's, it, I find that interesting because, you know, statistically, most people are murdered by people who they know. Almost That's always, right. not always, but almost always. Right. So one one has to wonder, Danny, you and also the other officer who was working missing persons, the person who's calling in is the significant other. And that is where suspicion would automatically go. Yet that's who you have to get information from. So my question to you is, were you suspicious of Valerie from the very beginning? Well, sure. I mean, Judy, Judy was able to uh, to give us enough information that that she had she had seen some red flags on this. And um, so, um, you know, there were some things that had happened. Uh, the the uh, victim's ATM card had been used and there were some photographs of a uh, white male, young white male with a shaved head at two or three different banks withdrawing money within the 24 hours after the the after William Whiteside went missing. And we knew that, that Valerie had two sons and uh, it didn't take long to figure out that one of them was, was living with her. The other one lived quite a distance away and, and really wasn't involved with his mom at all. So, so it, it didn't take long to start looking at these people. And, and especially, you know, we went and we talked to Valerie and, you know, she immediately made some mistakes in, in giving us different information than she'd given before. And, um, and quite frankly, she was so nervous. She got so upset about things that, that we, we had spoken with her once. And then we went back to speak with her a second time. And I don't recall now if it was even the same day or another day, but, but she literally uh, let us into her home, William's home actually. And, and then said, you know, and we told her, we said, you know, Valerie, we want to, we want to talk to you some more, but we want to do it down at the station. And, and she says, okay, let me change. And she went into a bedroom and we hear some commotion and, and it was pretty clear that she was going out a window. So she jumps out of a window oh, no. of a mobile home and she takes off running through this trailer park. So you got these two old white guys, you know, running through a trailer park in suits, chasing a woman for crying out loud. 
thankfully we caught her. I caught her. My partner jumped in the car and kind of drove past her to, to cut her off. But, uh, you know, you'd never live that one down if you didn't catch the 35 year old woman. But, um, you know, and, I, and, and at that point that created some complications because when someone runs police naturally, when you catch them, you know, there's, there's force that's used because in today's world, any hands-on is force. You know, if I just take your arm and put it behind your back, that's force. And once you have physical force that's used, there's a lot of things that change. And, and you know, from that point on, you could say, okay, well, now is this a custodial interview? You know, do, do they need their Miranda warning? There are a lot of things that happen. And uh, long story short, we, we got everything calmed down and um, talked to her until she was more reasonable about, about what we were there to do. She agreed to go to the station with us. We told her she was not under arrest. And in fact, just to make sure that she understood that, we took her to a, a place in the station that, that she was able to walk right out if she wanted to. And we told her that she could. Made, made clear, let her go to the restroom unaccompanied so that, you know, there, there was no no detention whatsoever. And, and we sat, we talked to her for about three hours. And, and during that conversation, it was, um, it, it was a very, very heavy deal. And, and I, I guess I should say there's, there's so much that goes on in the homicide investigation that prior to this, by then we had located a couple of witnesses. Um, you know, the witnesses were also uncooperative. We chased a lot of people in this case. <laughs> One of the witnesses, we ended up chasing him twice and catching him both times. And, and once he was caught, then he started telling us, well, I, I'm just afraid because I know so much about the case. And he was there when they disposed of the evidence. He had firsthand account of, of the things that, that these individuals did. There were some other witnesses that were present for different parts of the, the case after the murder itself. And, and by then we had it pretty locked in and we didn't necessarily need Valerie Martin's confession, but I wanted it because um, quite frankly, it, it's, you know, she, she wasn't there at the, at the onset of the crime, but she was there when he was killed. So, so Danny, correct me if I'm wrong here, but according to court records, the, the plot that was actually hatched to kill William, that apparently the suspects, at least three of them, maybe four of them, they had all been smoking meth. And while they were smoking meth, Valerie mentions that she owes drug dealers 300 bucks and they need money to pay their debt. And somehow in this drug induced state, they hatch this plot where they they say that they're actually going to get William when he's coming off work and they're going to jump him and steal his wallet. This is this is the plot that they hatched. And then I think they actually went so far as to try it and then realized this is too public. So they came up with another plan, which was to lure William to another location, claiming that Valerie needed to be picked up. And then they assaulted him, William, with baseball bats. And then they put him in the trunk of the car and then they set the car on fire. Um, yeah, that's correct. I mostly correct. There's, there's a few things that aren't um, absolutely correct. And, 
it, it is kind of hard to tell this story because the uh, there's so much that happened and trying to be concise. But but yes, eventually what we find out, the facts of the case are that, that they come up with this plan of, of how to get some money. And whether or not it's because Valerie owed $300 for drugs, I don't know. I never necessarily believed that wholeheartedly. Um, I, I think they wanted him out of their life. You know, they, they had a good thing going on and they just thought if he's not around, get some cash, plus we live here. You know, people on meth don't necessarily think things through real well. But but he gets off at midnight and she calls the hospital and she says, hey, you know, could you um, can you go pick Ray Ray up because his car's broke down and and he agrees to do so. And she sends him to this very remote place out in the desert. And she says, that's where the boys are. And there's a kind of a meth hangout out there. And so when William arrives to, to this location, uh, Ray Ray's there along with, with these other two individuals, uh, Christopher and Bradley, and they come up to the car and one of them gets into the car and the other two come to the driver's window and they immediately start beating him. Um, and, and they, they beat him, they crack his head with, with these sticks that they call uh, the N-word beaters. And, um, and they, they mess him up and they put him in the trunk of his car and then they drive off. And, and while they're driving around, they're, uh, one of them remembered, oh, mom said we're supposed to get the wallet. So they pull over, they open the trunk and, and he's still in the, the trunk, mostly alive. And, I guess moving around, so they um, they get the wallet, they beat him some more, they drive further, uh, they hear some commotion in the trunk, and and they think he's trying to get out, and they stop and they beat him again. And anyways, during this whole thing, they call Valerie Martin, and they and they tell her, okay, this is where we are now, and they've driven further out into the desert to a very remote location, and Valerie um, gets in her vehicle because um, she's at home, and these three are further out in the desert and she gets some gasoline and she drives out there and they uh, torch the car and Christopher, he's pouring gasoline on it. Ray Ray lights it before he's done. Christopher gets burned. His leg and his arm were burned pretty bad. Um, they're all high on drugs. So Ray Ray's laughing and, you know, calling him a dumbass and, and things like that. This is the, the scene that's going on while this man is in the trunk of his car dying. <clears throat> excuse me and um and valerie is there she's there watching the entire thing and um and bradley had gotten into the car with valerie and, and he was watching as well but uh but then they leave and they go they go back to william's house and a couple of them shower and they they talk about we have to get all of our clothes gathered up it's gonna have to be burned so um Danny, I find this interesting. So one of the suspects in this case actually gets burned while setting William on fire and the car on fire. Did he get treatment in the hospital? And how did that unfold as far as potential evidence against him as a murder suspect? Well, that is a very interesting um, part of this, in fact. And this is this is where some some really great luck happened. Uh, Basically, they went back to William's house. They, they got rid of all the clothing that they were wearing. They put it in, in bags, uh, uh, trash bags. A couple of them showered, as I recall. They pick up Ray Ray's girlfriend, who was still at the, at the house during all of this. And then they drive over to Christopher's house. And on the way there, Christopher calls his mother, who he lives with, he, the Christopher's the 27-year-old, 
and says, Mom, get your car out of the garage. And this is 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. So she's not happy, but she does what he says, and she gets the car out of the garage so that they can park in the garage and, and basically be hidden. And, um, and, they go in, and they go into, they all go into Christopher's room. This is Christopher, uh, Bradley, Ray Ray, um, Valerie, and Ray Ray's girlfriend. Um, I don't recall her name off the top of my head, but, but so the five of them are in this very small little bedroom, a child's bedroom in, a, in an old house. And, and they're basically crashing in there. They've got a black light going and they're laughing at, you know, that they can see some blood on different, you know, people's arms or whatever. And, um, and, and they eventually are kind of crashing. And then the next morning at about seven o'clock, the uh, Christopher's parole officer shows up and that was completely coincidental. He showed up to check on Christopher and he goes into the room and uh, a great, you know, piece of police work on his part very intelligently he's like who are all these people why are they with my parolee and he documents each person so now we've got them locked just hours after this murder they're all together and it's all documented well he violates christopher because he's high on meth i don't remember if they had meth with them but they had contraband so he violates him and takes him to jail so christopher is shipped off to jail long before i even get this case and he's sitting at the county jail as this, the rest of this case unfolds. And eventually, uh, my partner and I, we, we write a search warrant. Um, even though he's in custody, we have to do a search warrant because we want to search his body. We want to search his, his person for evidence of these burn marks because we, you know, we have that information now. And we take him to a burn specialist who uh, is able to tell us, you know, the, the types of burns, the, the degree of burns, the... Um, approximate uh, um, length of time from when when he examined them to when the burns occurred, which was all consistent with the murder. And while this so, is going on, I'm curious, Danny. So while he's being checked for his burns and he knows why he's being checked, is anything changing in his demeanor? Does he appear like he's going to start cooperating? Because that's an awful lot of pressure. When you're standing there in front of a burn specialist, a doctor, it's like they know, like the cops know. Yeah, no, he he uh, he lawyered up right away. He wouldn't answer any questions. He he knew he knew that he was in a lot of trouble. He knew that we had him dead bang at that point. He probably knew that having you know Valerie Martin involved in this thing, a fourteen-year-old kid involved in this thing, all the various tweakers that they were hanging around with in those several days after the murder, uh, destroying evidence, you know, burning clothes, doing all of this. He, I'm sure he knew that someone's going to talk if not several people and um and and he just you know he 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 was a convict you know he's convicted felon he'd been in and out of the joint so he knew the other thing i'm very curious about here is so now you have one person being taken into custody because he's violated parole Right. So he's a key player in all of this. And you're checking him for burn marks and all, everything else. Meanwhile, where is William? Is William still in the trunk when um, Christopher gets picked up by his parole officer? Well, yeah. So they burn they burn the car. <laughs> they set the car on fire. And and we later proved through an autopsy that that um, William Whiteside was still alive in the car and uh, and burned to death. So. The, uh, the vehicle was called in as a, you know, just a vehicle out in the desert that was 
put on fire. And that's not uncommon. Um, a lot of criminals will steal cars, they go commit crimes, and then they set the car on fire. And so the Wait car a minute. Was, it, so, Danny, are you telling me that the car was found, but no one knew that William was in the trunk? Yeah, the car was found the next day. <gasps> and, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, um, and the car was impounded and uh, an arson uh, report was written. And, um, and William was still a missing person. But also at, at that point, um, those dots hadn't been connected that, that the vehicle that he was in you know, was William Whiteside's vehicle. At least it, it hadn't, the connection hadn't been made over to our case. It so wait a, a minute. So it was William's car. It's yes. torched in the desert. It gets called in as an abandoned vehicle. It gets impounded and William is still in the trunk. And yet the authorities have not opened this car to figure out that there's a body in there. It gets, it's a little bit worse than that. I hate to admit this, but um, so an arson investigator is sent to, to investigate the case. And um, I think at that point, the connection had been made that, that this is the vehicle of a missing person. And so he went and he, he searched the car and he even opened the trunk, but he did not see William Whiteside in the trunk. Oh, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because I can tell you, um, when I found this out, it, it, at some point during this investigation, when we found out that that he was burned alive in the car because at this point we knew that, okay, his car was recovered and it was burned. But of course we didn't know that he was burned alive in the car until someone confessed that to us. So once that confession came, when I first found out that his car had been burned and it was at the impound, I checked and made sure that, that arson explosives had, had gone and looked at this vehicle. And I was told, yeah, they did. And, and there's no body. Well, you can imagine how, how much is going on. Ray Ray's on the run. Uh, Bradley's on the run. Uh, Christopher's in jail. Uh, Valerie's jumping out of windows. So there's a lot going on in, and we're working, you know, 18, 20 hour days trying to put this case together in those first couple of days. And we're, we're tracking down all of these different witnesses, people that were involved in different parts of the, the aftermath. And um, so the car since someone else had looked at it, an arson investigator, you know, it really wasn't a huge thing to me until uh, Bradley Zotis confessed that, that um, yeah, he, he was in the car when we set it on fire. So does so that then, mean you went back out and said, we got to look at this car? And then it like how badly burned to the point like there wasn't a skeleton? Is that why no one would have known that he was burned in the car? So I called a, I called an arson investigator who I was personal friends with, um, a guy that that a top notch investigator, and I and I knew that you know I could rely on him, and um, and I said, hey, meet me at this tow yard. I need you to, to go through this car with me. So so he does, and uh, when we open the trunk and we're looking in there, I, I don't see a body either, and you know. Um, it takes, you know, it takes a while before uh, in the arson investigator is pointing going, isn't that a skull? And, and finally, I'm like, oh, I see it now. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, but, my goodness, Danny, I can't even believe this. That's amazing. Well, there's there's just there's so much ash 
that's left behind. You know, everything that burned is just, you know, it's piles of ash. And he was in the as far back away from the opening of the trunk as you can get, which is very, very common for burn victims. Like if you find a person that, that dies in a, in a home fire, they're usually in a corner. They're trying to escape. And, and usually with the smoke, they can't. They, they find themselves in a corner and that's where they succumb usually to smoke inhalation. But, um, but yeah, so he was, he was in, the, in the very far back. I mean, as far as you could crawl back there to where, you know, if you had a bag of groceries back there, you'd have to really reach in and, and, and dig deep to get it out. So it took a while to see. And once I saw the head, then I was able to make out the shapes of the rest of a human form. So now you realize that William has been in the trunk of this charred car the entire time, and it matches the information given to you by the youngest of the suspects. Was the youngest suspect the one who basically broke first? No, uh, Valerie Martin broke first, and it was it was our interview with her on that afternoon or evening actually after she had jumped out of the window and, and ran from us that, that she told us most of the story and she gave us a self-serving statement, but she did confess to, to setting it up to, to calling uh, William and sending him out there. And, and that's really all you need period to, to convict her of this murder. But she also tried to, to come up with this story about, you know, well, the, we're just going to have him rob, you know, rob William and, and uh, take his money and, and no one was supposed to get hurt. And of course, my question was, so what do you suppose you would have talked about the next morning over breakfast? You know, sorry, they cracked your head open. I mean, that's, that's an absurd, it, no one buys that. The jury obviously didn't buy that. You can't, you can't say that, you know, I'm going to call you and send you out and my son's going to beat you and rob you, but that's all. We'll, we'll still see you back at the house later. I mean, clearly they intended to murder him from the very beginning. And that's, that's where that premeditation and intent is, is so important. You know, proving that uh, it really made the case, you know, that the fact that there were, there were all the various elements uh, as far as motive. So what I want to know about Valerie is what do you believe was her motivation? If if she were a, a white supremacist, why would she be with a man of color? I don't know that she was necessarily a white supremacist. Her, her kid was, and his friends were. She was, she was a drug addict. She, you know, she used meth and she liked it. And, you know, like other people who have spent their life making bad choices and going down bad roads, um, I, I think that she just did some really stupid things. And, and, you know, there's a lot of murders that happen behind meth, probably more than any other drug I've ever seen in my career. Um, people... People just lose their minds with that stuff. And I, I don't think she was thinking. I mean, you know, clearly she wasn't. And, and I'll tell you in the interview, um, I honestly believe that she didn't know that, that William was still alive. And, uh, and, and she broke down. When I told her that, she, she had real tears. She had tried to cry earlier in the interview, and there were no tears. But, but she, she kind of lost it there because, you know, I... Uh, I kind of hit her with it, you know, and told her, you know, that's your, your boyfriend was, was being burned to death in the trunk of that car. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that, that he died thinking about you and you were outside of the car. And um, she had no idea. She had no idea he was still alive. And I do believe that, but 
it doesn't matter either, other than the fact that it's just that much more heinous of a crime. But, um, so, but she thought they, they she thought they were just covering up the murder. What I'm trying to also understand is why do you think she wanted him dead? If you believe that she wanted him dead, like what what was it? Or, or again, I guess because of the fact that they're all on meth, that nobody's thinking clearly. Well, well, there's that and the fact that that she knew he had money. You know, he was a, a he was a hardworking guy and he saved his money. And like I said, he had a, a nice, modest home and he lived within his means. She knew he had a bank account. That's and she knew the code to his ATM. And that's that's why she told uh, Ray Ray to make sure that he got the, the wallet. But, uh, you know, for for the the money and because I think that she knew that that her time there wasn't going to be lasting much longer. You know, uh, William was sick of, of all of it, you know, tired of Valerie, tired of her kid, tired of these, these, uh, you know, white punks that are in, in his home calling him the N-word because he's a Native American, you know, as, as just absurd as that is. But that's how they treated him because they're, they're skinheads, you know, they're idiots. So if she confesses to you what happened, then how do things then change when it's time to take this thing to court? I'm not sure I understand that question. Well, um, did she was there a trial or did she take she couldn't have done a plea deal because you can't be sentenced to death in a plea deal. You're you're not allowed in California. You got it has to be a trial. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, you know, we got the confession and parts of that were used against her. But no, she didn't. You know, none of them, other than Bradley. Bradley took a deal and, and pled guilty and, and received a, a lighter sentence to testify against the others. But um, but Ray Ray, Christopher, and, and Valerie, uh, you know, the three of them, they, they fought it to the end. I mean, they really had no choice. What else could they do? That's what I mean. So she confessed to you. You say she confessed to you, but when it came time for the trial, their plea was not guilty and they were going to fight it and deny it the whole time. Yeah. And that's, that's really actually pretty common. I mean, you know, a lot of times we'll get confessions and they're never even introduced into court for a variety of reasons, but you know, people, in fact, I, I would guess that probably the bulk of people that confess to the police, you know, they end up getting a lawyer that, that says, you know, yeah, we're going to, we're going to try to keep that out of court and uh, we're pleading not guilty. You know, they're, they're going to fight it because, you know, what other choice do they have? I'm curious, why did Valerie get the death sentence, but not the other defendants? Uh, I am not entirely sure about that, to be honest with you. But um, I think that the jury saw that, um, that, that how evil a person could be to send their I'm going to use the word loved one. I mean, they were living together. I, I think that you could use that term, you know, send, send your loved one off to death. You know, you, you plan the thing, you know, you, you could argue that the boys were younger and, and um, influenced by her decisions. And she told them what to do. And, and she went and got the gasoline and drove it out to the desert. Um, it's, that's, it's pure evil, you know, everything, the whole, the whole thing is pure evil, but, you know, just imagine, you know, when when you go to bed with somebody, you trust that person. And, you know, I I've often said, you know, some of the the, the worst, the, some of the most tragic murders that just really 
stay with a person and, and, and bother, you know, an investigator are these murders where the person killed, uh, trusted and loved the killer, you know, whether it's a spouse or a child. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. And, um, and thankfully the jury saw that and they, and they said that she needs to pay for the, the, the crime, the heinous crime that, that, the four of them committed and, and I, I'm glad, I'm glad that they gave her the, the death sentence. You know, I, California won't ever put her to death, but at least she won't get out of prison. And, and I, I believe that's appropriate. So she's one of the few women who sits on death row. There aren't a lot of women who are often sentenced to death row. No, very small, small percentage of, of you know, the population on death row throughout the country are women. Very, very small percentage. I used to know that number. I don't remember it now. I think it's like 8% or something. I, I don't remember. Maybe even lower than that. So do you feel, you know, one of the conversations I have often on the regular podcast and, and with everyone who comes on the program is about justice. Do you believe in this case there was finally justice? Oh, absolutely. I do. I, I believe because, you know, like I said, I, they're not going to put Valerie to death. And, and to be honest with you, I, I wouldn't rejoice if they did. I mean, you know, I, I and I'm for the death penalty, but, um, you know, I, I'm just glad that she's going to spend the rest of her life in prison and, and, uh, and Christopher and, and Ray Ray, they will as well. And, and I can tell you those, those two are dangerous people. Ray Ray, the 16 year old, um, is, is, he exemplifies evil and, uh, and if he were out again, he would kill again. In fact, I'm sure he'll kill in prison if he hasn't already. Wow. What, yeah. what a very gruesome and heinous murder this is. It's so interesting that this is the one that stuck with you that you wanted to talk about. Well, there's several, you know, I mean, you know, about another case, uh, you and I went out to the, to the site and, um, and, you know, I, I kind of, actually anticipate you asking, you know, why wouldn't you have said that case? Well, you know why? Because I don't really talk about that case. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we're not going to get into the details, but what I'll say to everyone is that basically that case revolved a father who literally tossed his child off a cliff, pretended and made it look like an accident. And you and your partner finally got to the bottom of it. And sadly, you know, a child was murdered. It was a horrific case horrific case. Yeah. That's where I met you. It is. And it's a very emotional case, very emotional case. Um, they're also tragic. They really are. And again, always brings us back to what is what is justice, at least in this case, there have been convictions for the people involved and appeals exhausted and they're going to sit in prison. So I suppose you could look at it that way as far as justice. So I'm curious, you also said you're, you write so many books and we're going to talk about your latest book, but you said you may want to actually write a book about this case. Well, so um, the, the book that's uh, on the background there, Nothing Left to Prove, is actually my first nonfiction book. That's a law enforcement memoir. And uh, so it's a true story. And, and there's a lot of material in there that's, that's like this. In fact, the Whiteside case, I talk about it in there. I, I talk in depth about the interview um, because it, it was a very interesting thing to uh, to get her to confess but um, but that's uh, that's my first nonfiction book and and I do uh, plan to write others I, I would like to write this case as a standalone um, true crime story 
you know, I've got seven uh, novels out there and, and I enjoy writing the novels. And in some ways they're just, they're easier because, you know, you don't have to worry about all of the litigation and, and legalities of, of writing a true crime, but, um, and you don't have all the research, you just make stuff up. So, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I enjoyed writing this, this memoir and, and I'm real excited about it. Um, but I'm excited about that. I'm kind of looking forward to moving into uh, writing more nonfiction, although I'm sure I'll still pump out a couple of novels here and there. And your novels are under the name Dickie Floyd. Is that correct? No, no, no. They're under my name, Danny R. Smith, but it's called, the first series is called the Dickie Floyd Detective Series um, by Danny R. Smith. All right. So the, so the other set of books, your original set of books, they started with a character, Dickie Floyd. There's two characters in the book, Dickie and Floyd. So it's kind of a, a play on that. It's called the Dickie Floyd Detective Series. And and part of the reason is these two characters, Dickie and Floyd, are, are inseparable and, and at times almost, um, uh, you know, the, I'd say undistinguishable, but they're very different. But it, it's just kind of a play on words. But there's there's Dickie and Floyd are the two characters. I always conflate them into one person. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's my fault that you do that because I that's why I call it the Dickie Floyd series. So. <laughs> well, I just think it's amazing that you have experienced some horrific cases in your life and met some horrible, evil human beings, but you've also met some really lovely people who have suffered terribly and have survived horrible crimes. And yet here you are in the next part of your career writing all these books. It's really amazing, Danny. It really is. Can I tell you one other thing? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I left, I, I was diagnosed with PTSD, and uh, that's how I started writing. My, the shrink they sent me to actually suggested it after he read my, my lengthy um, uh, answers to his questions. I, I, I just wrote out 14 pages of, of, of response, and when he read it, he said, you should write for a living. And, and, of course, I didn't really think about it at that time because I didn't care, but the point is, he said it would be therapeutic, and that is actually how I started writing. It took me a while after I retired, but I gave it a try, and I found that, that he was right. It was therapeutic for me to write, and I've been retired now for from the sheriff's department. I, I started a second career, but I've been retired uh, for 18 years in the sheriff's department. No, that's not right. 17 years. And, um, and I just now have written this memoir because... Uh, this memoir was very difficult for me to, to write. And I, I talked about my PTSD. I talked about this case. I talked about what this case did to me. And um, it actually, during the preliminary hearing, I, I got trouble in court because I was so on the edge by the time, that time of my career, I was ready to, to snap. And I did. I, I, I was very upset about the lightheartedness in the courtroom, the attorneys that were, you know, joking and talking to their these defendants, you know, and carrying on as if we weren't there because a man was burned alive. And, and, and I was incensed and, and I got really angry about it. And when one of the attorneys was, was questioning my integrity and he pointed a finger at me, um, I came out of my seat, pointed my finger at him. And I told him, don't ever do that again. And the judge lost his mind, and, you know, slamming the gavel. I've never done that before. I've always been very, very professional in court, but it exemplified that, that that was right at the end of my career. And, and it exemplified the fact that I'd hit a wall. I couldn't take it anymore. I had all those pieces 
you know, they were fragile and just, just coming apart. And, uh, you know, and that's why it was hard to write that memoir because there's a lot of raw truth in there. And, and I, I talk about all of that. I talk about the, the difficulty of, of doing this job and it's, it's something that, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people outside of law enforcement and their families and close friends, I don't think that a lot of them realize uh, how difficult it is. I have to thank you for sharing something that personal with us because your frankness and excuse me, my dog is barking. <laughs> She's always indicating to me when it's close to the yeah, end hey, of a program. Up, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, no, but your, your, um, your frankness about the impact of everything that you experienced as an officer, as a detective and the totality of that and the impact that had on you emotionally and mentally and physically to be able to share that with us in such a vulnerable way. I, I really thank you for that because, you know, we look at these cases and we do an analysis and sometimes it all seems very distant, right? There are right. facts that we put together and the forensics we put together. But at the end, end of the day, it's always about a human being and a human life. And so for you to be able to get in touch with that and share that with us, I, I really now now I truly comprehend, Danny, why you wanted to talk about this case, because now I understand how it ties all the way back to your book and this point in your life about why you started writing. So you nailed it. That's it. Yeah. Wow. No, thank, thank you. you. And I appreciate those kind words. I really do. And, and yeah, I, you know, um, again, the, the memoir that's, I, I feel like that honesty is, is needed. And I think that the public's going to really uh, um, appreciate it because um, there, I'm not the only one. I mean, I, I think that the, the bulk of people uh, that leave law enforcement and um, you know, they, they crawl into bottles or, or they just uh, dark, get into dark holes and, you know, very, very sadly, we lose more cops to suicide every year than we do to a uh, line of duty deaths. And um, uh, I, I think that, that people need to be more open about it. You know, I mean, I, I had a lot of respect from most of my colleagues and, and uh, you know, and I worked a, a tough place most of my life. But, you know, I'm a turns out I'm a big marshmallow, man. I mean, I it it things things really took a toll on me and. And I, I don't think I'm the only one. When I first met you and I met your partner, I saw that other side of you, Danny. I saw how vulnerable and how emotionally available both of you were to the mother of the child who was murdered and how close that you have remained with her all of these years later. So I did see that softer side to you guys. So Danny, where can people find out more about you and your books? Are you on social media? Yeah, unfortunately I'm all over social media because I try to promote my books, but uh, I have a, a website. Murdermemo.com is the easiest thing for most people to remember. Also, DickieFloydNovels.com will get you to the same site. So, actually, that's the name of the website. But um, uh, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. I hardly ever use the, the latter two. But Facebook, I have a what's called the Dickie Floyd Novels VIP group. And that's where I do the bulk of my interaction with, with my readers um, they're always the first to know about my new releases and, and promotions and things of that nature. And I just kind of have a lot of fun on there. 
I love it. I think that's great. I love how interactive you are. We're very interactive here on the podcast, especially on YouTube. We get a lot of responses from people who watch and or listen, or as my dog is chiming in right now, uh, once again, Jackie O always giving us the cues. So um, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And also I want to let everyone know that this is a special series of ours, the True Crime Daily's My Favorite Case series. And there are a few other episodes that you can check out if you like, which include the firefighter versus the cat lady. Then there's the FBI versus the amateur hot air balloonist. And there's also a deep dive into the trial of killer Jody Arias. So if you're interested in any of those cases, those podcasts are out as well. Danny, thank you again. We really appreciate you joining us. This is True Crime Daily's My Favorite Case. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and we thank you for joining us. 